0: That's the name of the song by the band Atomic Mosquitoes. It appears on their album Meltdown and appears on episode 59 of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. I'm Derek M. Cook, your host, and, well, this is Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, and we are definitely getting into some classic material this week, and I'm not talking about our returning guest, Tracy Morris. She is back from Disney, Indiana, back here at MKR to talk about a movie that kind of celebrates the end of things, if the Martians had their way. We're talking about the classic film, The War of the Worlds. George Powell Production directed by Byron Heskin, starring well, we'll get into it later when we talk to Tracy about the movie. It's a great film. I'm really looking forward to it, especially since, well, you'll find out. Let's get some of the business out of the way. If you have any feedback here for the show, email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com Or send us a voicemail at 503-4795-MKR. That's 503-4795-657. Of course, you can find us on Facebook by doing a search for Monster Kid Radio. You can like the page, and you can join the group. You can also find all the other stuff that we have over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. I'm talking about links to our Live 365 channel, our YouTube page, our Flickr album. It's all there. Since the last time I've mentioned our 50 review challenge in the iTunes store, we've received another review. So as of right now, we are at 29 reviews in the U.S. iTunes store. Remember, if we get up to 50 reviews in the iTunes store, we're doing something special here on the show. So if you haven't already done so and you use iTunes to listen and download the show every week, we'd appreciate an honest review over there. Of course, if you listen to the show through Stitcher or any other podcast app, We appreciate your support that way as well. I am excited to get into the War of the Worlds with Tracy, so we're going to just kind of skip ahead and get to that right after this. Hey, listeners, this is Joe
1: Stuber. If you're a fan of Indiana Jones, you might have heard the indie comic book segment I co-host with Keith Voss over on the IndieCast. Well, if you like those segments, you'll want to check out a brand new podcast I'm hosting and producing called Comic Book Central. The mission of Comic Book Central is to showcase and celebrate how our favorite four-color adventures are represented in the media. That's right, when a comic book is brought to life, Comic Book Central is there. You'll hear from some of your favorite actors, directors, producers, and writers. And everyone is at a hand in contributing to the massive explosion of comic book projects we're seeing on Broadway, television, video games, and film today. Hey, how'd you like a preview? Well, here it is. Take a listen. world of podcasting has become Super Super It's Comic Book Central, the podcast devoted exclusively to interviews with the creative talents that have brought comics to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stanley. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for Best Cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. No, your show. Maybe this interview will be the turning point. I'm Kenneth Johnson, the creator of the Incredible Hulk television series. Was there ever thought to have the Hulk speak on the show? Yeah. No, Hulk not speak. Hulk talk is dumb. Hulk smash. Ooh, good. <laughs> fire bad?
2: Yeah, fire bad. Ah, ah.
1: She is Aaron Gray. Aaron, welcome to the show.
2: I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Deal was doing great. He was making the big bucks. And
1: then... You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look
2: better in white spandex. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: Hi, this is Rebecca Staub, the invisible woman from the original Fantastic Four movie. I was With the Fantastic Four. So, you know, I went and got a couple of the comic books and talked to people in the comic book store. Let me get this right. Going for the role of Sue Storm, you go into a comic book store and start talking to the guys there? Yeah. Could you please tell me how that went? He is an actor, former professional boxer, and a Kryptonian monolith. Let's welcome to the show Jack O'Halloran. What's tougher, uh, going toe-to-toe with George Foreman or with a Hollywood executive? (laughs) That's a good question.
2: You know, Hollywood executives aren't that difficult, actually.
1: Do you dress in all black when you go after him?
2: I wear my Krypton suit. (laughs)
0: Hi, this is Adrienne Barbeau, Catwoman
1: from Batman the Animated Series, and you're listening to Comic Book Central. Perfect. I have an obsession with the 70s game show Match Game. We have to remember Richard Dawson. Ever hit on you?
2: I don't think so. I did the pilot for the
1: gong show, and (laughs) Chuck Barris he asked me out a couple of times. Well, hi, guys. I'm Elias Falcon, the originator of Superman the Movie. Interesting casting note when we're talking about Clark and Lois, Lau Wagner and Linda Carter. Absolutely. Boy, you did your homework, man. Linda Carton comes to see me. I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel pool. Wonder Woman. My mouth falls on the floor. It's Captain Marvel himself, Jackson Bostwick. Great costume, by the way. Great costume. Oh, fantastic. Do you have it? Yeah, I have one. When was the last time you were in it? Well, oh, actually, I, I went around the house, the dogs like it, and uh, <laughs> when i barbecued it. Hey, Captain Marvel, heaven. flip me a burger. Yeah. Damn. Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum, Lex Luthor from
0: Smallville. Uh, make sure you listen to this guy's show. He sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe.
1: You are listening to Comic Book... Comic Book... Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. Well, as you can tell, my guests and I have a lot of fun talking about their comic book theme projects, but I can see we also touch on some serious topics as well. It's fascinating to get the stories behind the stories with some of these folks, Uh, These interviews are pretty revealing, to say the least. It's Comic Book Central. Check it out online at comicbookcentral.net, on Facebook at Comic Book Central Network, Twitter at Comic Book CTRL, and make sure you subscribe to it on iTunes. It's Comic Book Central, where comic books come to life.
0: You know, I really didn't know what to talk about at the end of the year here on Monster Kid Radio, and I was talking with Scott. You guys heard him last week when we were talking about Santa Claus' Congress of Margins, and he said, you know what? Why don't we let the year go out with a bang, end of the world style with War of the Worlds? And I said, Scott, that's a great idea. I'll talk about it with your wife. So I have Tracy Morris here on the show. How's it going, Tracy?
2: It's going well. Thanks for having me on the show again.
0: Well, you're always welcome. Uh, you know, Tracy is my favorite guest of Monster Kid Radio on the show this week. So, you know, it's a pleasure to have her here.
2: And I'm also your least favorite on the show this week.
0: Well, I wasn't oh. going to go that far.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so Tracy Morris has
0: been on the show before. We talked about the Valley of Guanji. Uh, she was here to talk about their Monster Mania experience at the Artcraft Theater. And I'm still stinging from the jealousy of hearing about that experience. How have things been? Things have been well. Still still, still rocking it over at Disney Indiana?
2: Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, We just released our um, Christmas episode this past weekend. Lots of holiday goodness in that episode, if you're so inclined. If you're still in the mood. If you're still in the mood, right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think by the time this episode goes out, you guys will have released your coverage of the movie Saving Mr. Banks. Yes. So I know that as of this recording, which through the miracle of time travel, maybe George Powell style. Uh, (laughs) That episode hasn't come out yet. I'm looking forward to hearing that episode. I want to see that movie and hear about what you guys thought about it. So I encourage everybody to go over to Disney Indiana. Follow our website links over at monsterkidradio.net to find how you can get to Disney Indiana. But if you want to cut out the middleman, go to DisneyIndiana.com. But Disney is not Tracy's only love. I mean, it's her first love and a big, big part of the pie chart of her heart but she also likes a lot of these movies. That's why we keep having her back on the show and The War of the Worlds. And I may have fibbed a little bit. It wasn't just Scott's idea by himself to talk about this movie. I think this is one you've mentioned in the past, isn't it?
2: Yes, this is one I've been wanting to talk about on uh, Monster Kid Radio for a little while. And then when Scott brought up the idea of the end of the year being the end of the world, I piped in and said, "Ooh, how about War of the Worlds?
0: I'm glad he did. And I'm excited i'm going to let known a little known fact about me i'd never seen it really this was your first time this was my first go round.
2: this should be interesting then
0: i loved it man i see i i've seen bits and pieces Mm -hmm. this is one of those movies where you kind of know the story i mean if you are into science fiction if you are into this kind of thing you know the drill you know you know how it works out i mean you know the story but This is the first time I sat down to watch it from start to finish uninterrupted. So good. But this is something I'm assuming you've seen quite a bit.
2: Well, actually, my first exposure to the story was not the movie, the 1953 movie, and it was not the original H.G. Wells novel. It was 1978's Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. Now, this was a concept album, a double concept album, that my parents picked up on 8-track, way back when. And we would listen to it in the car during long car trips. So it's, it's a, wow. a retelling of the story, and it stays fairly close to the original novel, but it's interspersed with musical interludes. It has Richard Burton as the narrator, and another name that people may be somewhat familiar with is Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues, who performed the songs. So it's very much kind of in the prog rock feel. It's orchestral. I have a very soft spot in my heart for it. I know it's very dated, but it's, it's a lot of fun to listen to. So if you're not familiar with it, at least go out and read the Wikipedia page. See if it's something you might be interested in. But yeah, it, it's kind of near and dear to my heart.
0: That sounds really cool. I, actually, I'm familiar with the album. It was loaned to me by a guy that I was working with at a blockbuster video back in the mid-90s. He said, you got to check this out. And I took it home and I played the heck out of it. man. it was a really cool album. So I can imagine just it it sounds like great car trip fodder.
2: Oh, it is. There's the uh, 1938 radio play, the Orson Welles radio play that I heard probably sometime as a teenager. And I think that's about the first time I also saw the 1953 film. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if I read the original novel back then, but I did just recently reread it to help prepare for this show. And I will admit to having seen the 2005 Tom no, Cruise no, version. No, that no, no, no. We
0: don't have to talk about it. Okay. It's okay. Good. This is a safe place, Tracy. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first exposure to War of the Worlds was not the radio show. Well, it kind of sort of was, but it wasn't the novel. It wasn't anything like that. I remember reading the, I guess, a, a play or transcript version of the radio play in a textbook in grade school oh it was some you know one of the assigned reading things and i loved the story at that point so i was aware of the story and all that going into this movie because i had read it before uh, i remember and man i wish i had kept all the tapes that i had made growing up but i remember i had this little tape recorder where I tried to read every part of the radio play into the tape recorder, trying to do different voices and all that. You know, I'm a little <laughs> Derek, whatever. I don't know what I was doing, but that would have been fun. Oh, yeah. To uh, so go back and listen to – I. maybe it's a good thing those tapes don't exist anymore. Anyway, that was my first exposure to it. And then, of course, the novel uh, by H.G. Wells. I remember picking that up at a book fair in grade school. And then War of the Worlds was out of my life for a long time until – the late 80s, when there was a TV show called World of the Worlds, it came out. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with this show?
2: I think I may have watched an episode or two. It's not something that I, I can recall clearly in any way. I think I remember hearing about it and maybe, maybe seeing an episode or two. If, if it was on cable, probably not, because we didn't have cable back then. I don't remember
0: a heck of a lot about it, other than there was a Native American character who carried a big knife. I, I don't remember much more outside of it. I'm kind of curious now to go back and check it out. But, yeah, it was this two-season science fiction thing, supposedly a sequel to the film that we're talking about here. The aliens aren't dead. They're actually reviving now. They were, like, in suspended animation or something like that. And there's this government group trying to go around shutting it down. I guess, and, and I didn't realize this at the time because I hadn't seen the film, I guess that Ann Robinson appeared in the show.
2: I did read that while doing some prep for this show.
0: So now I'm doubly curious about checking this thing out, but that, you know, whatever. I mean, it's one of these little spinoff projects or whatever, War of the Worlds has had a lot of representation in different forms of media, whether it's television or this, this concept album you were talking about. What we're going to talk about primarily is the 1953 film uh, directed by Byron Haskin, produced by George Powell. Man, blew my mind watching this thing.
2: Now, you've seen George Powell's other films, right? Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with George Powell,
0: of course. I'm not that bad of a market kid. <laughs> Come on. I wouldn't have been bad on that. I mean, no, I mean, no. Yeah, you know, no, I'm familiar with George Powell quite a bit. Mm-hmm. For, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, this one just slipped my viewing – skipped by my viewing experience. I'm not sure what happened.
2: Hmm. Well, for those, those of you who are less than familiar with the film, shall we go through a quick – Yeah, let's –
0: Yeah, let's let's kind of skip through the plot. I mean, go through the plot a little bit. I think most people know the story. I mean, it's a classic tale, right? I mean, I I can't think of anybody who is into this kind of thing who doesn't know the story at least or at least know how it ends. I mean, I think that's kind of the big reveal or twist or whatever. I mean, you know how the movie ends. And even if you haven't seen the film like I did going into it, it's been it's referenced in other Films. I mean, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai makes a playoff of War of the Worlds. I mean, so I, it's out there in the zeitgeist. So, But yeah, let's talk about the plot. I mean, it opens with this. I, I, man, I didn't know what to expect going into this thing, but to get this kind of primer about World War I and World War II, and now we're on to the War of the Worlds. Yeah. Wow.
2: I, I, to be honest, I had forgotten that little bit at the beginning, the re- like you said, the references to the previous World Wars, and I was thinking, did they stick the trailer for this film That's what it at felt the like. beginning of like, the film?
0: I watched it on Amazon Prime streaming last night, and I thought, well, maybe I selected the wrong option. Maybe I got one of those trailer compilations or something. No, nope. mm-hmm. it dives right into the film.
2: Yep, and from there we again get kind of a little bit of an introduction that talks about the planets of the solar system, and how you know the the Martian beings were trying to figure out they their world was turning colder, and basically they were exhausted all their options, so they're looking at the other planets. I found it interesting that Venus got skipped over.
0: Did it? I guess yeah. I didn't notice, but yeah. yeah.
2: So I don't know if that was intentional or because if i remember in in the novel they mentioned that maybe they were going to try venus next after they discovered the earth was not hospitable to them
0: huh well of course there was also that grand government conspiracy back in the 50s trying to hide the existence of venus from the rest of it i have no idea (laughs) i have no idea
2: so the, the story is updated. Of course, H.G. Wells wrote it in his current time and place, which is the late 1890s London. The movie takes us to what was then modern day Southern California being the first location where the Martian ships land.
0: <laughs> and when they land, and I don't know if we're getting too far ahead of things here, but when they land and the the meteor or the Spacecraft is in the ground and they all think it's a meteor. There's one character who's like, well, you know those meteors, they come in hot. Like he has all this experience, <laughs> you know, finding meteors out in the middle of nowhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, because that, that wasn't one of the scientists. That was just one of the townspeople, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, all that happens around here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought it was interesting how they brought Dr. Clayton Forrester in. He and a couple of his buddies were out in the middle of nowhere fishing and... The people, the townspeople somehow know about that and they go out to pick them up and bring them over to check out what they still think at the time is a meteor. And again, re re watching this this recently, there's some pretty serious production values in this scene. It looked, as far as I could tell, it looked like it was filmed on location, that or it was on a very large set. But they dug a huge pit. They had whatever, whatever they made the. Meteor out of looked pretty impressive.
0: I I got the vibe that maybe it was a set because some of the backgrounds were just way too blue but it doesn't matter because it still looked great. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it was a set, it was a big set. Right. (laughs) You know, it looked really good. I think you nailed it when you talked about the production value. That's one of the things that most impressed me about this movie. I guess I kind of went into it expecting it to be a little bit of a lower budget production. And... Whether it was lower budget or not, it didn't look like it.
2: Bringing up the wiki page, it talks about the budget of $2 million. And let's see, where did I read? It was something like 70% of the, that cost went to the special effects and the sets. And the I other 30% went to the actual live, the filming, the live action and everything else. So it's, it's interesting see to see, you know, a movie from this time period dedicating that much of its budget to the special effects.
0: I mean, I love the special effects on this thing.
2: Love them. Me too. So they're all thinking it's a meteorite. Some of the again, some of the townspeople and you get the, the feeling that this is kind of out, like I said, out in the sticks. And they're trying to figure out if this is going to be, hey, maybe it can be a tourist attraction. You know, someone even talks about setting up a hot dog and enchilada stand outside <laughs> which
0: was great yeah <laughs> we, and we should set up picnic tables too no they'd bring their own lunch then that is
2: great so uh forrester dr clayton forrester who is from the pacific institute if i remember right he's right he's involved in atomic research and he's he's just seems like kind of an all-round scientist specialist person i don't think they ever talk real specifically about what he does but he decides he's going to stick around. And, um, of course, he's met up with an attractive young woman who knows all about him. She's done research, except she doesn't recognize him when she sees him face to face.
0: I thought that was great, though. I mean, he's wearing the glasses. So he's got the Clark Kent disguise on.
2: <laughs> I never thought about that. But you yeah. know.
0: <laughs> and he's got a little bit of a shadow, you know, five, you know, five three o'clock shadow. O'clock, shadow sure. Whatever, five he's he's whatever. been out
2: camping. He's not going to spend a lot of time on personal grooming
0: right so she doesn't recognize her model i thought that was adorable
2: yeah it was it was very meat cute (laughs) so he decides to stick around and he asks her what what people do in a little town like this and darn it she takes him to a square dance
0: that was amazing (laughs) i loved it i love this movie it's so cool i was trying to figure out
2: if they like fixed him up with another outfit or if he just happened to have clothing appropriate for a square <laughs> dance with him or what?
0: Yeah. Cause he had the little tie going and all mm-hmm. that. <laughs> he was ready to go. No, see, knows awesome.
2: <laughs> so after, after we, we get kind of the, the square dance thing, we go back to a couple of the townspeople who've decided to stick around and make, basically make sure that it doesn't cause any additional forest fires that was, that was what actually brought everybody's attention to it at first. When it landed, it caught the surrounding countryside on fire. So they, they decide finally, oh, it's starting to cool off. And, and they go over and look at it. And they start hearing this weird sound. And they look. And a part of the meteor is starting to unscrew. Mm-hmm. I love that sound effect.
0: It's a great sound effect and it's a great scene, too, because mm-hmm. you don't know how far down this thing is screwed in. So it's just turning and turning and turning in it's suspenseful. Mm-hmm. And there's these three guys like watching it and you're yelling at. I mean, I knew this was bad news for these three guys. Mm-hmm. But, man, such an effective sequence. The sound is great. These three guys, the performances. This is one of my favorite scenes of the movie.
2: Yeah, like you said, the suspense. And once the, the hatch finally unscrews and slides off, you know, that's that's when they realize obviously this isn't just a meteor, it's some kind of ship. I guess they've figured out at this point it came from Mars. They do make the jump. Yep. And I, I think Forrester was involved in that as well. Yeah. So they decide they're going to use the universal symbol of a white flag. <laughs> to indicate that they they come in peace. So that one of them gets a, a, what, a sugar sack or a feed sack out of his car. Yeah, i got and something ties in the truck, be right back. Yeah, ties yeah. it to a stick and, and they're, you know, going, we come in peace, we mean to be friends. And this, I don't even know how you want to describe it, almost like a cobra. This thing comes out and it's got a big lens on it. It's copper colored and it just kind of pivots. You can tell it's being used to observe the outside and it focuses in on them. And the yellow light kind of in the middle kind of goes to red and out comes the heat ray. Yeah. What'd you think of the heat ray? I thought
0: it looked good for what it was. I mean, considering the time, especially, I didn't have a problem with it. I think now. It would probably be a little bit more sophisticated, but I think back then it 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 worked really well and I now know where that kind of at this point, stereotypical cliched sound effect of a ray gun comes comes from.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the sound better than the look. Yeah. It it's, it's
0: kind it of it seems too yeah, it's sparks. not
2: so much of a ray as it is more of a scatter to be extremely picky.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just kind of spits these sparks at him. I, I mean, I like it for what it is. Sure. But it, it does seem like it would be difficult to aim.
2: So, it, needless to say, the three guys are now toast, or ash as the case may be.
0: Which, when we find the remains later, I was blown away to see that.
2: Yes, it uh, was very reminiscent of what you hear and read about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which it I, was piles of ash in human shape.
0: I was shocked. I mean, I double-checked. This was the early 50s, right? When I saw yeah. that, I'm like, wow. that's." But- I wasn't expecting that. Now, we don't see that throughout the rest of the movie. If I remember right, and I was looking for it, mm-hmm. the remains of other people typically are just like these black smudges. Right. But, I mean, to see this was just, it's like, wow, I'm impressed. This movie is impressing me. As, <laughs> as every minute goes by in the film, I'm more and more impressed here.
2: And something else that happened... When that fixture, whatever you want to call it, fired the heat ray, apparently it also sent out some sort of electromagnetic pulse because we then switch back to the square dance and the lights go out. Yeah. Now, it was it was a live band playing, so it wasn't like the music stopped all of a sudden. But, yeah, the lights go out and they just they happen to have candles so they set up the candles and then someone wants to know what time it is and they look at their watch oh my watch stopped somebody else looks at their watch oh my watch stopped everybody's watch stopped so again dr forrester to the rescue he realizes that there must have been some kind of magnetic effect and he puts two and two together and thinks hmm, maybe it had something to do with the meteor And especially once he has the sheriff pull out a compass, which, of course, you you carry around a compass, don't you? Oh, yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. You know. Especially when I go square dancing. I mean, it's important.
2: Yeah. You You got to know when they say Alaman North, you got to know which way north is. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So he pulls out his compass and it points towards the meteorite crash site, which is not where north should be. So that's when Forrester and the sheriff go to investigate and discover the heat ray and the Martians. They both escape. They go back to town to raise the alarm. And this is also when we find out this is not the only meteorite ship. So these meteorites, these Martians, they've started to land other locations, not just around Southern California, but around the world. And I think that would be an interesting jumping off place for any, you know, for fan fiction. (laughs) <laughs> I think what happened other places in the world. Yeah. you know, Cause later, later in the film you discover, and I, I thought they did a nice job again for 1950s. They did a nice job about talking about other parts of the world being affected. They reference India. They reference Europe. They reference South America. There's so,
0: one it, moment where they do refer to the other countries and we have that little bond, that short, very short montage of different countries or different people with different skin color basically reacting. Right. But it's and- just real brief. You're right. I mean, to see it as a worldwide thing would mm-hmm. have been a much epic, much more epic film and much different film. I mean, I, in the case of this story, I do like that it was drilled down to a smaller northern California town. But you're right. I mean, to see it overall, you might have had a <laughs> a more a pressing sense of dread through the film. <laughs>
2: But at the same time, I was impressed for a film from the 1950s that it wasn't just the U.S. They did at least make a right. token reference to other places. And I'd, I'd love to know some of the sources of the stock footage. I'm assuming a lot of it, especially the shots of London, were, of course, World War II and the yeah. Blitz. Mm-hmm. But some There's of the a other blitz. shots, I would, I'd, I'd love to know if anyone has gone back and tried to identify some of that stock footage.
0: You know, this is one that I want to pick up on DVD just because I want to look at the special features, that sort of thing. I wonder if it's covered in there.
2: Uh, I don't know. I don't currently have it on DVD or Blu-ray. I don't have to look and see if it's available on Blu-ray. I don't know. So we've we've discovered that the Martians are not coming in peace. They are coming in war. So we bring out the military. (laughs) So
0: the As you do.
2: As you do. Well, they started it. To be fair, <laughs> so this is they, true. They, they bring in the Marines and they surround the original Southern California landing site. And by this time, there's more than just this single heat ray item. Somehow, the, Mar- the Martians have unpacked and they have unpacked their three war machines. What'd you think of the design of the war machines? I mean, I'm sure you'd seen clips of oh, them yeah. before,
0: and, and I had seen them. Like I said, even though I hadn't seen the movie before, I'd seen bits and pieces. You can't avoid them when you're watching, like a trailer collection or mm-hmm. a best of 50 sci-fi collection, or any of these documentaries referring to classic. You know, sci-fi films. So I was familiar with the design. I thought they looked great, and I thought, more importantly, they moved great. It was clearly more than just something hanging on a wire, and it very well could have been just something hanging on a wire, but I felt like they had weight. Mm-hmm. They felt real, like they were actually there, and I loved
2: it. Yes, that's one area where I think you know the practical effects were wonderfully done. As you said, they didn't feel like they were just hanging on wires. They felt as if they were, they they aren't really supposed to be hovering. You know, Forrester does say something about them being supported by invisible rays. And I think in like the very first scene you see them, you can actually kind of see sparks coming out both from the bottom of the ships as well as sparks coming up from the ground where those rays would be. Yeah. But that that kind of fades out throughout the movie. So I'm thinking maybe that special effect was just too hard to use in multiple situations. Uh, but as yeah, you said, the, the design of them, it, it's very 50s. I mean, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> that, you know, the, the swooshy shape. It reminds me of the, the boomerang motif that you see on a lot of furniture. But it still look. I mean, it looks alien. It looks really good. So there's there's these three copper-colored war machines, and they start advancing towards the military. And um, we didn't reference this character earlier, but uh, when the meteorite first lands, one of the people, one of the townspeople is the local pastor, who just conveniently happens to be the uncle of... Sylvia Van Buren, who is the woman who met up with Forrester and is now, they're, they're kind of a cute couple. Right. <laughs> and the uh, Pastor Collins, Uncle Matthew, goes out to try to diffuse the situation. So I he,
0: really liked his character. I really liked his role in this. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. It's not the first time religion or a religious figure is going to turn up. Uh, In fact, this movie seemed to have a lot of religious uh, iconography at Mm -hmm. points. I really liked the pastor, and I liked what he was trying to do, and I was surprised at his ultimate fate as well. Again, I felt like, wow, this is just the early 50s, right? And they're going to do that to the pastor? What? So.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because going back to the source material, there is a religious figure in that story as well, but he's presented as being very ineffectual. He basically panics and, you know, he goes on and on saying, you know, we brought this plague upon ourselves because we were sinners. So H.G. Wells was much more negative towards the role of religion versus George Powell and well, the, the screenplay written by Barry Lyndon and the director, Brian Haskins. So they, they kind right. of took that and, and basically turned it 180 degrees. So that, that's kind of an interesting take on the role of religion. And that, that's something I've always wondered. If and when we meet creatures from other planets, how will that affect humankind's approach toward religion?
0: You know, I've thought that for years, too, even growing up. I mean, you watch something like Star Trek and you're like, well, you know, and and I'm not talking about Star Trek 5. But, you you know, you you watch a science fiction show set in the future or whatever. You do wonder what is the role of religion in that time or in that that setting with different races from different planets and things like that.
2: So the Martians taking out Uncle Matthew, taking out uh, Pastor Collins, pretty much— Seals the deal and the military opens fire on the yeah. th- on the three war machines. Not terribly successfully.
0: No. No, it doesn't it doesn't go well. I think later in the movie one of the generals reports that they've lost I should have wrote down the percentages, but when he's reporting to somebody further up the food chain.
2: It was like yeah, sixty percent of the men and ninety percent of the materiel. Yeah. Something like that.
0: That's a loss.
2: Yeah, a serious
0: <laughs> that's, loss. That's bad. Uh, you know, the the men are killed, the the equipment's wiped out, and then that whole sequence ends when the general or whoever is in the tent yells at our doctor and Sylvia to get out of the tent, and then he looks at the audience. I mean, I don't think it's like an actual breaking of the fourth wall, but he mm-hmm. happens to be looking at the audience, and he yells at everybody, get out, and then, bam, he gets hit by that ray.
2: Well, there's two different kinds of rays. There's yeah. the heat ray which comes from the kind of cobra-like I, I I call it a gun what have you but there there's the the neck of the machine and then there's green pulses that come out from the ends uh each side of the ship. Now they seem to have pretty much the same effect. Whatever gets hit disappears. Yeah. You know, what,
0: there's no surviving it.
2: Yeah. So he gets hit by one of the green rays, and yeah, again, a very he's the only one where you really see a process of him glowing green, you see his skeleton momentarily, and then he disappears. Everything else, it's like it pretty much lights up either yellow if it was hit by the heat ray, or green if it was hit by the other ray, and mm-hmm. just disappears. Sometimes there's a black smudge, sometimes there isn't.
0: You and I have talked in the past about how much i would have loved to have gone back in time to watch some of these movies in the theater i would have loved to have gone back in time to watch this movie for the first time with a fresh audience Mm -hmm. back in 1953 just to see the reaction of the audience to like the pastor getting killed or that particular shot where you see a skeleton right right i mean i i would have to go back and, and double check the dates on some of these other sci-fi, alien, I guess, invasion type movies. But I would imagine that this one had to be quite shocking.
2: I agree. Another reason I'd like to go back is to look with a fresh eye on some of the special effects. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we we talked about how the heat ray, by modern standards, mm, visually a little questionable. But again, what would it have looked like 60 years ago?
0: I know, right?
2: The force field that we referred to, you know, the Martians, once we start firing back at them, the force field, it basically looks kind of like those jars that you see over clocks or over, you know. Like a big bell jar. Yeah, bell jars. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. And, of course, the the little calculating part of my mind goes, so if you just hid and were able to tunnel up from underneath, would you still be able to (laughs) attack them? Because uh, it comes in a cylinder all the way down to the ground, whereas other force fields that we see later on in the history of cinema, it's more of a sphere. (laughs) But I thought this was interesting that it was a cylindrical shape.
0: So I hope everybody's out there taking notes. If we get attacked by Martians that use a bell jar force field, just tunnel underneath. Thanks to Tracy. Tunnel underneath (laughs) and you're fine. You can get them.
2: So, as Derek mentioned, Dr. Forrester and Sylvia Van Buren do escape from the military bunker, and they escape. And this was something that was mentioned earlier. Forrester had his plane available, so they fly away in a, in a, a plane, but not very far.
0: No, they don't make it very far. I mean, they they survive, but yeah, they, know, the plane goes down.
2: <laughs> right. I don't know. if and it may have even been hit by friendly fire. Hard to say. So, mm-hmm. they almost run into what may be another set of war machines. It's not clear. We've seen in the background, we've seen other Martian ships landing in the Southern California countryside during the military buildup. So it's not clear if these are the same three war machines or if these are new ones that they run into. They hide in a farmhouse and become trapped inside the farmhouse when another ship comes crashing down. Which was I thought another very well done scene. So they think they're out of danger. She's cooking him breakfast. Everything's nice and domestic, and yeah, that was
0: yeah. I appreciate that this movie. First, I mean, it starts with a small Northern California town to begin with, which allows us to have an intimate type story. But then after the Martians go ahead and, and I mean do what they do, the story drills down even further into not just this intimate story about this small town. But now it's these two survivors, and it's a very personal story. I mean, I really like the relationship between the two that's developing despite everything that's going on. They reference the pastor at one point. Mm-hmm. Well, I liked him. Well, he liked you too. You know, this there's a, a brief moment of mourning. Yeah, it is 50, so she's going to get to doing the woman's work by making breakfast. But it's still a nice distillation, I guess. I I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. It is awfully early for me in the morning at this point. (laughs) But I did like the story that was developing between those two against the backdrop of the Martians just outside the window, literally.
2: Yes. (laughs) You, You mentioned, yeah, she's making breakfast for him. But it wasn't quite as stereotypical. You know, when they first meet, she mentions that she's familiar with his work. She's done research. She's pursuing an education i think a, a masters, master's degree. yes yeah. degree so she's got some intellectual chops and he does try to treat her as an equal intellectually yes he's very protective of her you know being the manly man protecting the frail fragile woman during quite a few of these scenes but at the same time he is treating her as an equal in terms of well let's figure out what we need to do next
0: there is a moment where she's panicking she's screaming or bawling or crying well and he's and he grabs her and tells her to stop i was dreading the moment when he was going to slap her to make her stop and he never did
2: yes i was and i appreciate for that.
0: this movie so much for that
2: she panics but it's after mm-hmm. the moment of crisis right while they're while they're in and we're going to do a little bit of spoiler the movie's 60 years old so we're going to spoil. <laughs> maybe do a little bit of spoilers but while they're in the farmhouse they are tracked by a Martian electronic eye. And again, the design on this is just gorgeous. It fishes out. It extends from the bottom of one of the war machines. It's on a really long cable. And it just kind of snakes its way into the house to oh, see so what's good. going on. And so it's good. a Yeah, it's, it's all made out of copper and brass. And it's a, like a, tr- a three-part eye. It's red, blue, and green. It does spot them eventually, and Forrester chops at it and is able, actually able to retrieve the camera portion of the electronic eye. She reacts there, but again, it's not total panic. It's not, yeah, total freak out. And there's another scene where she actually, we, we finally get to see one of the Martians in person, or at least parts of it in person. And she freezes and has her little panic attack later. So again, she's she's not as stereotypical a woman as you see in a lot of these other films—the screaming and flailing and "save me, save me, save me," which I was right. thankful for.
0: Yeah, I groundbreaking. I feel like because you see that in a lot of the fifties, and heck, even well, even now. I mean, you see yeah. that you know this weaker. And I don't believe that she was a weaker character in this. I mean, sure, she has the right to be upset over the pastor dying. He, yeah was it's a father worth, figure to her sure. I mean of course you know and I really appreciated that the movie did not have to have the doctor slap her to bring her out of her her crying moment which the respect that I had for this movie just shot up when that happened when that did, or did that did not happen right yeah. <laughs> Alright, I, I know, I know, I know. Bad Monster Kid. I probably should have seen The War of the Worlds from start to finish. One dedicated viewing before sitting down to watch it for this week's episodes here at MKR. The truth is I had probably seen enough of the movie in bits and pieces here and there to stitch the whole thing together. You know, I don't have to explain myself to you. It's my show. The Bottom line is I'm so glad I had a chance to talk about this movie with Tracy. This is probably one of my favorite films that I've watched this year. It's so good. And the creature design, which we're going to get into next time is amazing. We're going to talk about that with Tracy when we come back for episode 60. Now, if you want to hear more Tracy, and of course you'd want to, I mean, it's Tracy, go over to her home podcast, Disney Indiana at DisneyIndiana.com. Or you can follow the links over at monsterkidradio.net. Disney Indiana is one of the permanent links we have there. If you just click on links, you'll be able to find it right there. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution. Non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song, Ah, The Atmosphere! that belongs to Atomic Mosquitoes. It appears on their album Meltdown and is on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Talk to you on episode 60. Uh